0: Where are we all going now that Twitter is app non grata? I've seen things, I've tried things. I don't know
1: what's actually like. You're younger than me and more in tune. with such No, things. I mean, first off, I'm not that much younger than you. Also, uh, you know, I'm I'm past the age where I would be in tune with anything. <laughs> um, in terms of like what replaces Twitter for like our cohort, we'll see if anything will replace it. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not convinced that Twitter is going away but that's a whole other issue i guess
0: it's interesting to see everybody scatter. you know like some people are over on this app and some people are
1: over on this app and some people are people are some people have stick their
0: names Ah, uh, not so much yeah that's, um,
1: that's i mean i signed up for a for like a high profile yeah the app is terrible Yes. Um, I'm not going to use it. <laughs> um, I,
0: I tried getting my way through Mastodon. I'm like, I don't even know how not, this works.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there we
0: go. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 296 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast. of My movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. I'm excited, folks. And it's a surreal feeling because after the last few years, the idea of excitement was becoming a foreign concept, but it's true. I am excited. I'm excited that we've arrived at the holiday season, and with it comes all the great movies that we've been waiting for all year. I'm excited over how much fun I'm having with that over the last several episodes of the show and the guests I've had. Presumably, that will continue today. I'm excited for just the second time in all the years I've been doing this show that I'll be talking about a film by my favorite director ever. And I'm excited for the guest I have today since he's always so much fun to talk to, argue with, and is probably as big a fan of this director as I am. He is a really smart critic, a good friend, and a neighbor I've been running into around town Corey a tad is here. How are you, man? I'm very
1: good. I'm very good. That's good to hear. Yeah.
0: On episode 296, we will be discussing the Fablemans. This will be a spoiler laden review. We will be flipping the record over to play the other side, and we need to learn more about Corey. This is Know Your Enemy. Corey debuted on the matinee cast episode 65. We talked about the remake of Total Recall. We learned the first film he ever saw in a theater was Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. The last film he saw at the time was Punch Drunk Love. The worst film he's ever seen is Across the Universe. The unseen classic or essential is Tokyo Story, which he has now seen. And the film he wished he made was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Episode 99, Corey returned. We talked about the Broken Circle Breakdown. We learned the film everybody else hates that he loves is War Horse. The film everybody else likes that he does not is Playtime. The last film to make him cry was Lucky Star. In the movie of his life, he'd be played by Tobey Maguire. And the movie he was watching next was Something by Frank Borsegi. On episode 166, Corey came back to talk about Moonlight. We learned the film that made his love of cinema turn a corner is The Fellowship of the Ring. His first date movie was Pirates of the Caribbean. His sick day movie is the 2009 version of Star Trek. The last film to leave him speechless is Manchester by the Sea, and his film epitaph would be shot in the back by Buford Tannen over a matter of $80. Finally, Corey returned on episode 269. There is an episode in between then and now, but we just didn't do Know Your Enemy because we had a lot to talk about with Everything Everywhere all at mm-hmm. once. But 269, we learned the film he loves but never wants to see again is Dear Zachary. The last film to really freak him out was Hereditary. The film that always makes him laugh is Dumb and Dumber. His favorite movie soundtrack, also Dumb and Dumber. And the film he loves but nobody else has heard of is Little Man, What Now? Time for round 5 Here, five-timer, Corey, a tad. Mm-hmm. When you go to the cinema,
1: where do you like to sit? I used to prefer to sit sort of in the middle, in the middle. Which okay. is, you know, generally even when theaters are being you know, when they're fixing the picture and the sound and everything, they tend to like gear it towards like the center of the center.
0: Gotcha.
1: Um, so I used to sit there over time. I've sat closer and closer to the screen. Now it depends what theater I'm in because, you know, at the light box where I just came from a film, uh, they've got excellent screens and excellent projection. Even with the digital projection, uh, you can sit front row and you won't see pixels, which is nice. Uh, and the other thing is that they use just traditional white screens. The extra bit of that is I found that when I'm sitting close, generally sitting in the middle, not quite ideal because I find I have to like move my head back and forth. It's like you're watching tennis. Yeah. So what I do is I sit a bit to the side, and then I can kind of just take in the whole screen. So that's kind of okay. my method is close and then a bit off-center. There are some exceptions to that. If I'm seeing 2001, I'm sitting front row center Jesus. just that it's like overwhelming the senses. <laughs> no but, kidding. You know, like some people like to sit way in the back and I'm like, why don't you just stay home and watch your TV if you're going to do that? I, yeah. I know it's not the same, but like...
0: Well, I mean, I noticed that when I went to see Tar last month, I was sitting... Not even that far back. I was sitting. I want to say about halfway back in the house, mm-hmm. and but I was sitting on the side, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was. It was one of these theaters where there's aisles down the left and right, and then a oh, bank of about varsity eight. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, yeah. You know it, I yeah. know. it. So, but I was sitting on the side, and I'm and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, why does the screen look so small? I remember this being a pretty big screen. Why does it look so tiny? Mm-hmm. And wh- wh- why am I like, you know, kind of feel like I'm almost watching this on my phone, but from far away. You know, as far as like the the, the screen filling your field of view, mm-hmm. um, I'm, all, I'm all for that. And yeah, if yeah. you sit a little too close, you can kind of get a I can... sore neck by the
1: time it's done. Corey and Ted, if you can go on a date with any movie character, who would you choose? What was funny was I was talking with my friend Soraya before uh, coming on here. She says hello, by the way. Hmm. Uh, and uh, And I mentioned that this was one of the questions. And she's like, oh my God, you have to say Luke Kirby and take this waltz. So I'm going to say Luke <laughs> Kirby and take this waltz. Which, if anybody's seen Take This Waltz, you know, you might want to date him at least for a bit. You know, I I am going to find the diner scene
0: from Take This Waltz and embed it into the show notes. If nobody has ever seen that film and seen that scene, incredible scene, uh, and it's actually ap- apropos because we're going to be talking about Michelle Williams uh, at length in a few minutes, mm-hmm. and um, Seth Rogen, and reunion. Seth Rogen, good point, yeah. Luke Kirby, if anybody is unfamiliar, first of all, how dare you? He currently right now uh, is a man of my heart because he plays Lenny Bruce on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And mm-hmm. anytime it's a Lenny episode, it's automatically fantastic. And the show itself is already fantastic to begin with. So it's like extra fantastic. Take this while it's for anybody who may not yeah. have seen it. And if you haven't seen it, track it down. Um, just fantastic piece of filmmaking by Sarah Pauly, Um, about a woman who... Has an affair,
1: uh, lives in Toronto. Um You know, a lot of similarities actually between that film and uh, The Fable. A little films. bit, yeah, a little bit, just a few less kids. Um, yeah. And the
0: the the man of her affection, they happen to cross paths on a plane uh, mm-hmm. and they happen to be neighbors and um she pursues it. And when you listen to him talk and we just, I mean, sometimes you just gotta like, look at, like watch him look at the camera, watch him look at her. And you're like, you know, you know, we can say what we will about infidelity, but every once in a while, it's like, you know, that really, uh, that makes a convincing
1: argument. He's very, he's very sexy. He's yes, very he is. sexy. Yes. He <laughs> <is>. <laughs> um, you, when when she's contemplating uh, infidelity, you're like, I get it. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah,
0: I totally do. Okay, and and I totally get your answer. Very good. <laughs> Love it. Um,
1: okay, dovetailing out of that very nicely. Corey, itad, what is the dirtiest film you've ever seen? the dirtiest film I've I've seen is a movie called nine lives of a wet pussy. (laughs) It is, it's, it's an actual porn film. It's like, like hardcore. So that, you know, obviously it's going to be dirty. It's from this, from the seventies. More importantly, and the reason that I'm like willing to sort of put it up as like cinema um, is, is that it is, an early film by the great director abel ferrara no yes so he directed a a hardcore porn film and wouldn't you know it he also appears in it oh goody because one of the actors couldn't show up that day and he figured why not uh and the the truth is the thing the thing is it's not just that it's that it's a, a porno that makes it dirty if you know anything about Abel Ferrari, you can only imagine, like, how skeezy of a film this is going to be. Right. So, you know, if if your tastes ever skew that way or you're ever interested in, like, you know, what were some of these people doing in the 70s when there were, like, no rules? Yeah. That's the film you should that's watch. That's what he was doing. Or don't watch it, but know that it exists. You right. Know? <laughs> I I mean... The... <sighs>
0: The weird thing is, how did he, how did he stray? I I mean, I guess the short answer is it was 1976, but mm-hmm. how did he stray over into that? Like he was doing, I guess it was, he was doing shorts at the time. So I guess it was a job.
1: It, it would have been a job, but you know, you got to remember. And, and this is something that I actually like to be serious a moment about, about, um, about porn, which in recent years, we? was, well, in recent years, there's been kind of a lot more, I think, um, attention paid to the porn that was made, particularly in the '70s, um, both from like you know a cultural perspective. You see that in something like the Deuce, the sure. TV show. So it's kind of taking that seriously as this movement that was happening, um, but also in terms of uh, it was a form of underground cinema, you know. So a lot of it is very is very bad and uninteresting, like genuinely. But some of it is like, oh, wow, here's a filmmaker who basically clearly couldn't get a job doing anything else and is making weird halfway Lynchian, like, not this film in particular, but there's right. other there's other films where you're like, you know, there's this one called Corruption that was made by this guy who uh, also did some horror films. And that's the thing, a lot of these people did horror films and yeah. and, and exploitation films and that kind of stuff. And it was all this kind of mishmash of, of sort of outside of the mainstream underground fair um, that often had things going on in it that either were genuinely cinematically interesting or were kind of pushing boundaries of, of taste and sort of social mores and things like that. To see films made at a time when sort of the dams had broken open there was almost no sense for like where boundaries were. And so, you know, a lot of lines got crossed in ways that, you know, you watch those movies and you're like, could not make those today. And yeah, good that you couldn't make those today in a certain sense. But also you kind of feel a bit like, man, it's too bad that we, we don't have an environment where people can really kind of go to crazy places. But you also get stuff like, um, like taxi driver, which, for as much as it's kind of influenced by films of the the forties and fifties um, it's it's steeped in kind of the morass of like the decrepit seventies, New York yeah. and, you know, pornography figures into that film. Um, and, uh, and, and just that, that sense that there's sort of a, an underground an underbelly to the society that's kind of roiling and, and expressing itself um, which you don't Really, get now except for like Nazis on Twitter, which is not right. exactly the, not kind the of, same. Not no. the not what you want. Not no. what you want. The
0: different different so. kind of yeah. Yes, kind exactly. Of okay. Well, <laughs> you made that answer count. Thank you for yep. that. You're welcome. Uh, this had to be hard to narrow down.
1: Corey Ted, what is your favorite black and white film? Okay, so this is like I mean, I'll chide you a little bit. It's a bit of a silly question because it's it is. it's you're talking about you know uh, a, a solid uh, half of cinema history plus whatever other films happen to be made in uh, in black and white later technically the choice would be the apartment which is my favorite movie and is in black and white and it's also beautifully filmed in black and white so yes. so yes, it is. you know uh I, fact, I can that is my traditional Christmas Eve watch it's an ex I mean it's a great Christmas Eve movie yeah. it's I watch it every year not always at Christmas Eve but I watch it at least once a year Christmas Eve um, or New Year's Eve those are the two days that you must watch the apartment Excellent movie. Um, but just to keep making it slightly more interesting, there's a film I saw recently by the director Pedro Costa. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He did. His most recent film was uh, Vitalina Varela. I recently saw a restoration of his very first film from 1989 called Osangu. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. It translates to blood. Okay. Um, again, Portuguese film, black and white, it's it's an excellent film about you know kind of people living on the edge of poverty again it's an art film so there's kind of some elliptical qualities to it and all of that but the main thing is that like it's got to be one of the most beautifully filmed movies i've ever seen in my life it it it's uh and especially the restoration that they've done is is extraordinary i saw it at, at the light box um i was sitting with uh with my friend uh it was a filmmaker sophie Rambari. Um, and there were points where like the two of us were just like gasping at how beautiful some of the images were to the point where like, there's certain shots where I, I don't even really understand how they were accomplished. And this is like the guy's first movie and all of his movies are beautifully filmed, but this one is just like, he really went for it. Really, really went for it. And um, you know, it's called, like I said, Oh Sangu uh, blood by Pedro Costa. It's, it, you can find it online uh in not so great it's sort of an earlier dvd release it's still beautiful the blu-ray um company the distributor grasshopper films will be they, they they were responsible for the theatrical release so they'll probably be putting it on blu-ray so it'll be available in the new restoration i cannot recommend it enough it's it's so so beautiful
0: while you were yeah. talking i was looking at some stills from the film and you're right like this the some of this some of this photography is truly arresting um yeah i ask the question like you're right it is it is a silly question but i always ask the question because i'm interested to see where people take it because i you know yeah. like one of i i feel like one a future question is going to be tell me the best use of color in a film yeah and that and that could lend itself to all kinds of things from you know everything from douglas cirque to pedro almodovar um you yeah. know to to the wizard of oz
1: um but, well, that that was that was part of why I why I I thought to to answer with uh, with with this Pedro Costa film because it you know if I'm thinking about it more in terms of the use of black and white, well, there's a film made in 1989. It didn't need to be made in black and white. Right. You know, even even the stills don't quite capture what that movie is like because some of the things that he does with camera movement is incredible. Mm-hmm. But there's a particular it, it's like he has a particular understanding of how to use sort of very stark light and shadow yeah. and tricks to combine the two um, that, you know, even his color films are are really beautiful in the same way, but like in black and white, it's just, that stuff is made for black and white. Yeah. And so, you know, like I said, I saw that recently and it just completely knocked me out. Well, yeah. Thank
0: you. Uh, thank you for the tip. Uh, last but not least, Corey, Todd, what is a film you like, but
1: nobody would expect you to like? I had to think a lot about this just because I'm like, I don't know, you know, you got to make it count. It's like, it's like, okay, I don't know. Maybe I saw some random movie that came out recently that I liked uh, that nobody else likes. Um, Fine. But that doesn't mean anything. Maybe I don't like it that much. I don't know. And then I was thinking like, okay, do people even know, I don't know what people assume I like anyway. I have no idea what people would imagine I'm into. I thought for a minute, like, oh, I don't know if people would expect that. Like, I really love National Treasure, but then again, I tweet about it all the time, so <laughs> pr- maybe people do know that. I don't know. <laughs> I did think recently, and I have tweeted about this, and I know it's like the the filmmaker is problematic, but I'm a really big fan of the movie Joy, which wow. like nobody is. Nobody no, is a I would fan not of. expect you, to and like I wouldn't that. expect anybody to expect me to like that movie. I really like that movie, Okay, it's got a madcap energy, it's beautifully filmed, it's, it's yes. shot by uh, Lena Sandgren, mm-hmm. a, a great director of photography, works with uh, Damien Chazelle as well. It's just, the performances are great, I love the energy of it, I find the the sort of satirical elements of the story really great, I like the way that all the actors yell at each other 24-7 in that movie. <laughs> There's something about that, I don't know what it is, like when I saw it I'm like, why don't people like this movie, this is great nobody expects anybody to like that movie yeah that's I think,
0: I think that's the thing is and, i i you know i i thought it was okay at best yeah. I, would
1: have, I would have to go most back people and, hated it
0: most I didn't, people hated it i didn't uh, hate it like i think i saw what it was and what it probably wanted to be before somebody else took it over um it's i i think it was really interesting that it kind of slowed the role on david o russell quite a bit like for for a hot minute there he was just firing on all cylinders and it was like don't bet
1: against this director well kind of except that i think that i think part of it actually was that i mean never mind the he's got a controversial reputation to say the least oh yeah you know american hustle did well Mm -hmm. but i think it didn't land it got nominated for stuff and everything but i don't think it landed quite the way that silver linings playbook did and so i think that there was already a bit of a feeling of like ah maybe we're not that into this guy now i have to say uh i saw amsterdam oh god it is not good okay it's not it's not good uh and it's 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 not good on a level where you're like i don't know what happened to it but Mm -hmm. it almost feels like he forgot how to make a movie i'm like you know say what you will about the guy i don't think he had that problem before but this no, one really no. likes something went very thing. wrong I, you
0: know? I think that was the thing is with joy i think a lot of people were like what just happened like how did this guy forget how to make a movie all of a sudden yeah whereas just, i was just like ah oh, this guy really knows how to make a movie wow. i mean it's it, like at the, at the center it's got you like you said it's handsome um at the center it's got a really really great performance and that can carry something quite a bit uh yeah i would not expect
1: you to go to <laughs> I love that movie per- so I love the production design of it. I love okay. the. I. I. It's great. I've seen it. I've seen it like three or four times. Like I'm not that's, joking. It's. It's. I really like that movie. <laughs> that is
0: a fantastic answer. Thank you for that. All right,
1: we are going to learn more
0: about Corey when he inevitably shows up for another time. But right now, we have a movie to get to, uh, and we're going to be talking for a minute or two about this. I'm sure. Come on back again. Uh, consider yourself spoiler warned because. There's some things about this movie that must be discussed. Uh, There's just no two ways about it. We are going to talk about Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans right after this. Fablemans is directed by Steven Spielberg. It's written by Spielberg and Tony Kushner. It stars Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, Gabriel Labelle, Seth Rogen, and Judd Hirsch. The Fablemans is a semi-autobiographical tale of the Fableman family, standing in for the Spielberg family from New Jersey. Jewish couple Burton and Mitzi have four lovely children, but mostly we fixate on Sam, who is a stand-in for Spielberg himself. As the film opens, Sam is brought to see Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth, and there is just no turning back. Sam is obsessed with creating films, understanding film, learning the language and speaking it to say things that his own words sometimes cannot express. This passion continues through the years and across the country as the Fablemans move from house to house and place to place and often have to keep learning about each other as much as they have to learn about the landscape of a new city and a new home. It's a story about creativity and family, of art and science, and there will be much learned. Before the final reel. To look at the Fablemans, one could be forgiven if they felt that they were about to go on a nostalgic journey through simpler times. The image often glows, sometimes quite literally, with the wonder of youth and discovery. However, while the film does look to the past, I dare say here and now, before my guest, that I would not qualify this film as nostalgic. So, pop quiz hotshot, assuming you agree with me, and that is a big assumption. How, how does this film being just one more story about how life for the boomers from even one of the most talented boomers of all wasn't simply nicer and better?
1: It's an interesting question because I think that, that people sometimes mistake Spielberg for, you know, he's certainly capable of, of doing schmaltz and this film has it. He's, he's certainly uh, a, a filmmaker who, he has a mainstream perspective. Sure, he, there's a reason that he's one of the biggest filmmakers of all time because he has that that sort of populist instinct, um, and that often comes with a degree of sentimentality and and those things that have often been criticized. There's there's often been c- kind of a darkness to his films, sure, um, or if not a darkness, then at least sort of things on the edges that are not always so happy that are that are a little bit raw or real or human this movie you know you've got a filmmaker who's looking back on his past uh it's you're right it's all those boomer years the 50s 60s and yet i mean i think that there is some nostalgia in it i think i think that he's having fun kind of going back and looking at at some of the things that he got up to as a kid but i think that in truth he's wrestling with something in 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 this film yeah and the the reason that the movie avoids kind of the trap that you're talking about of just being like, okay, a tour through some boomer's nostalgia trip, uh, which, you know, the film could easily have been, it feels like something that's much, much more self-reflective uh, in all the ways that that a film can be self-reflective. And, and that actually you sometimes, you watch a movie like this and you realize that, You almost wish that movies were more self-reflective, like this. Like not not that every movie needs to be sort of a memoir or an autobiography, but that that they would display the level of um, self-criticism and almost kind of therapeutic dealing with one's own uh, uh, traumas in a a, a very direct way. Um, and, And that's all here in this movie.
0: You know, to answer my own question, I think the what keeps it from being nostalgic. What separates this film to use a to use a a film that I very easily could have chosen as an other side for this, but I didn't for reasons I do not understand. but what what separates this film from something like Super Eight is that mm. it while it is very much Sam's story and Sam's journey and Sam's discovery of this passion in this formative time of its life, he gives a lot of attention to the people that brought him there. Cause usually when a film is nostalgic, it's about that generation and their peers. It's not as much about that generation and mm. their relationship to their parents or their relationship to the adults in their life. And when we were talking about Take the Waltz, you brought up the fact that, you know, there's the, um, there's the um, Seth Rogen connection in this film. So we kind of have three parents. In this film, because even though I didn't mention him in the intro, along with Burton Mitzi, there's also um, their 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 best friend, Benny, um, who kind of form, you know, something of a a triad. yeah, Yeah, a triad for these children, but certainly for Sam, all as caring influences in this weird little push pull. And he wants to a honor all of that he doesn't just want to be look at this one magic summer where we rode our bikes and made movies and kissed girls and Mm. swam at the pool you know and we grew you know he doesn't want to make stand by me is what i'm saying Mm -hmm. um he wants to point his camera literally and and figuratively at the adults look at what they were going through while he was having this formative time and how all of this kind of turned into this interesting tapestry that formed not just him, but a whole family. And I think in doing that, he avoids focusing on the nostalgia of his own life, and
1: the results are amazing. You know, he goes a step even beyond, I think, what you're talking about, because, you know, the making of the film, it's it's something that uh, that apparently he had uh, sort of thought about even as as far back as when they were, making lincoln he was kind of like oh i should i should one day make a movie i've got all these stories about how i came up and and my biography and you know he's a filmmaker not a writer so you know make a movie rather than a book uh and and so you know he had had some conversations with with tony kushner and then after i guess his parents died uh, and and they were kind of making west side story he and tony kushner decided you know let's let's do it you know this is uh spielberg's uh, screenplay credits since AI and oh. uh, before that I think it I think in terms of ones that he had made it was Close Encounters yeah he so, doesn't
0: write very often
1: no and and they they tend to be very personal stories I mean I think um, Close Encounters obviously is extraordinarily personal uh, I think AI is an interesting case where you know he inherited a project from Kubrick but when you watch the film you can see why he was gravitating towards it. And you can actually see why Kubrick, if you know, famously Kubrick had thought that actually Spielberg might be a better director for it anyway, right? um, because there's stuff in it. That's just so deeply Spielberg when it comes to the relationship between parents and children. Yeah. So you see in, in this movie, a case where he's taken screenplay credit. Now I don't know how much pen he put to paper, but from what I understand, the process was essentially him sitting for long therapy sessions with Tony Kushner. Wow. So Tony Kushner was asking him all kinds of questions, basically doing a a form of like writerly psychoanalysis, just getting him to talk about all the things that he went through and all of his problems. And through that, they shaped a screenplay. And I think that that's incredibly evident on screen because it's, it's not just telling the story of his childhood it's not just telling the story of his family through that period. It's displaying a reckoning with what that all was. Mm-hmm. For a filmmaker who, you know, uh, you, you kind of said that this would be a spoiler, but, you know, it's a movie about divorce, which yeah. if you've seen any Spielberg movie ever, you know that he makes movies that are about divorce. Right. Uh, almost all of them have divorce somewhere in them, not or all Or marital of them, all. strife of some sort, like right all, down to Lincoln. Yeah. Almost all of them, almost all of them have yeah. it. And uh and and if they don't have divorce, they have some issues with parents and children. They have there's something there al- almost always. But I think that there's a difference between making films in in let's say an a, a tourist fashion just sort of happen to express the interest that he has and the things that he's dealing with inside. Versus a film where you can feel it in the movie, the hand of the filmmaker making choices about what to include, yeah, what to depict, in some cases how to depict them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's stuff that happens in the film that is very cinematic in a way where you're like, I don't know that this actually happened the way that it's being depicted, and yet. There's something interesting about the fact that then he would have chosen to do it that way, right? So you feel the authorship in it, which means that you feel the author dealing with these things directly, confronting. Yeah, you, right? I, I,
0: I, in those moments, I can think of a few of them. In those moments, I almost got the impression that that is the writer saying, this is the way I wish it had gone. You know, it's still hard. It's still you know, sucked. It was still, you know, a moment you, in my life that shaped me that was, you know,
1: not the greatest to live through at the time, but I wish it had gone this way. You, you would think that, but like I was reading an article by a guy who's a, he's written a biography, is writing a biography of Spielberg, um, doesn't have access to Spielberg himself, but has talked to like hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, around him and it's kind of pieced together his childhood you know there's stuff like okay there's some some stuff like apparently. so one of the things in the film there's a long kind of section where he's experiencing they move to california to Mm -hmm. saratoga i think and he's being uh bullied like uh uh, for being jewish is sort of anti-semitic bullying and apparently that's something that he also experienced when he was in phoenix but i guess for the sake of the movie it's better to just okay let's do it once we don't need to have it at two schools it's a structure thing right right but then there's a sequence one of the best scenes in the film for for sure and but there's quite a few great scenes uh is you know the the main kind of um, antagonist, this very sort of like uh, Uber Menchie Aryan looking guy um, who who bullies him. I think his name is Logan. This this blonde kind of beautiful statuesque kind of kind of uh, high schooler who's been beating him up and, and treating him like shit. He, and uh, sort of young uh, Sammy Fableman makes uh, a, a film of like this class trip to the beach and sort of centers that that bully in a way that makes him look like this great movie star, almost although a bit of like a Riefenstahlian kind I of was, movie star. Yeah, I was noticing
0: there, that, and I'm like, this is a very strange reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's you have definitely in this movie now.
1: There, there's definitely that stuff going on, which you know, again, Spielberg is a Jewish filmmaker, and it's a very Jewish film. That that stuff is not by accident. Yeah, um, and and by the way, Kushner as well, who's Jewish and and has written uh, plays that very much deal with Jewish issues. So so he makes this film. They present it at the prom yep. and everybody's loving it. And you know, you would think that the bully would love it uh, because he's being presented in this heroic way. But in fact, there's a scene that happens afterward where he confronts uh, Sam Feilman in the hall and basically has a bit of a breakdown because he feels that he's been made fun of in a very cutting way, in a way that even his bullying could never achieve. Uh, where. It's like Sam saw the person that he really is, Mm -hmm. but then depicted the person who's like the heroic guy that he could never actually be. Yeah, And this kind of messes him up. Now, according to, to go back to the, that biographer, according to that biographer, that is based on a thing that actually happened. It was not called ditch day in, in real life. It was called. Like sneak day or something. Right. He made this film and he presented this bully this way. And basically, the bully kind of went up to him afterward and was like, hey, man, that was actually really cool. And so it's interesting to me that he has this sequence that's apparently invented. Yeah. Where he himself, as a filmmaker, Spielberg is analyzing this thing that he did that this kid apparently didn't even recognize kind of what he was doing and that maybe spielberg himself as a young person didn't quite realize that that's what he was doing yeah but he was doing something kind of actually quite manipulative he doesn't come across like the nicest person when he does that no now now he doesn't come across terribly there's like a sourness to that you know because it's so
0: it's a very, very specific move. It's not I'm gonna make you look weak. You know, it's not like I'm gonna. You know, he does he does that to the other to the other bully. There's two <laughs> of these kind of golden boy kids who keep picking on him through the course of the film, and one of them he makes him look like the saddest sack ever. Like yeah. he catches him stealing pops and he and then being know, ignored yeah, by girls being and, yeah. ignored by girls and just off on his own looking like a loser that's not what he did to the bully the bully he he yeah he made him very much look like you know, a Roman, like, some, like somebody God. from
1: from Olympia. Very you know?
0: much so, yeah. And 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 you know, thinking in his head that this is not how the guy sees himself—that just like the rest of us, he has his own issues, and he hates himself. And seeing himself this way is really going to mess him up in a whole other way. Like that is actually some very
1: well. Shit. It's complicated by the idea that in that scene, he says himself, "Maybe that's why he did it. Maybe it's just what the camera captured." Yeah. Right now, what's funny about that? is that, of course, well, he's the one filming it. But there is some truth to that in terms of the things that look good on camera, the language of cinema, right? So, So throughout the film, you have a character who is often... I mean, the whole concept the whole st- launching point of the film is that he goes and sees this you know he, you, you understand um, the parents kind of talk about that he has like anxiety issues even mm-hmm, as a kid mm-hmm. and they go see the greatest show on earth and there's this big train crash and it's horrific and all of that and and he's just like traumatized basically now he's traumatized in a way where he's actually almost excited about it because he can't stop thinking about it right and his and it's his mom kind of understands his method of con he, he wants to control it essentially yeah. so yeah. she hands him an eight millimeter camera and says like okay film this toy train set and see if you know you can ca- that way you can crash the train once basically uh this toy train set and and then you'll have it forever on camera and of course because he's little spielberg he films it kind of amazingly he's <laughs> like he has this natural skill you know and spielberg has said on this tour that he's never been to therapy yeah. And that, in a way, movies were his therapy. Mm-hmm. And and what's interesting is I don't know if he always understood that. Now at, at age seventy five, he might understand that. But I don't know that when he was like in high school making a film, he necessarily understood that that's what he was doing. Certainly but not the back idea then. that maybe like maybe a student now in high school would understand
0: that that is their way of therapy well, and may, that is their way of coping. Yeah, maybe. But I don't, maybe, I don't but, think but, in nineteen sixty whatever that, that may, a teenager would put that together.
1: Per, perhaps, but but it's almost. It's almost the idea that that the language of cinema becomes this natural language for him, mm-hmm. with which he can almost unbeknownst to him express things yeah. and and confront issues, um, if maybe indirectly. Right. Um, you know, which then becomes a whole thing in 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 terms of his parents' divorce, yeah. um, which is also rendered in a really complicated way where where you know and it's based on truth where his mother you know there was this best friend who they affectionately referred to as an uncle who actually you know technically he was the father's best friend but actually he was around more because she was in love with him and the fa- and and the father of course clearly knew that basically the whole time um but it was this complicated relationship where they still loved each other but couldn't fundamentally make it work because they were two different types of people he's a computer engineer and very oriented towards that and she's more of an artist and 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 she herself was always torn between family life and wanting to do sort of more creative and artistic things in ways that often make her act act out and act a little bit kooky at one point in the movie, she gets a monkey. That's something that his mom did in real life. Um, you know, I mean,
0: it's interesting that you mentioned that because I
1: actually do now find it
0: fascinating that for all of the things this film confronts, and it's possible that it doesn't confront this because Spielberg just does not have the information and felt it unfair to make it up, never actually confronts Bert and Mitzi having a conversation about Benny. You know, like there's, there's a conversation about when, when Bert wants to move and leave Benny behind. And there is a conversation about, you know, like, you know, marriage is complicated and for a great many things or whatever, but there is never, and there is never a complication of, I know what Benny means to you. And it's more than just friendship, you know? Um, By the way, in case anybody has not put this together, we are now full on in spoiler mode here
1: that she leaves him for Benny. She leaves him for Benny. (laughs) but but the the you know it's funny you say that because there is actually one conversation that happens which is uh late in the movie uh somewhat late in the movie before they split up where the kids actually overhear uh them kind of arguing in the in the bedroom and i don't think they name benny directly in that conversation but that's clearly what they're talking about Mm -hmm. um the entire picture that he is painting, it could not have been an easy one to paint
0: and an easy one to confront for for a person who is con- like who is considered very, very wholesome. You know, like you, you, even though like you mentioned how like all of his stories are so clearly mm. informed by this divorce that shaped mm. him as a child. He himself has been part of a relationship that ended and when he went on to another relationship now, seemingly that one has, you know, the one that he was always meant to be in given how long it's lasted the size of their family, the, the, you know, their, their, their work together as a unit, what have you, um, you know, all of this, it's not that it's not that he's foreign to the language and, you know, his parents were childhood sweethearts and he married mm-hmm. his childhood sweetheart and he knows nothing other than this Rockwellian existence. That is not at all the case, but it just for, uh, for the man whose reputation is, going into this movie, I was actually afraid it would be too saccharine to be like, I use that word, texting a friend, walking over the movie. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm almost afraid this is going to be too honey dripping sweet of mm-hmm. a look back into a boy becoming a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, and, and seeing that poster where it's him walking on the universal lot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or the CBS lot. Um That is not, you know, that is not where we go. And bravo to him for going there for, for into going, you know, actually into the shadows, not just playing there this time, but actually Mm. going into the darkness. Um, and that kind of real hard revelation may just have been that one step too far. And he's like, you know what? I'm here enough. You get
1: it. I don't need to really spell it out for you. There's certain moments where it leaves his subjectivity, Sam Fabelman's subjectivity and goes towards, you know, one of the parents or whatever, but yeah, for the most part, it sticks with him. So, for example, there's a detail in the movie after uh, they they tell the kids that they're um, that they're splitting up, and uh, at one point, uh, you know, they're essentially he's blaming his mom, uh, or his mom is being blamed mm-hmm. for like wanting to to leave and whatever. And there's just an offhand line where Paul Dano is actually like, "No, it was my, it's idea. my idea." Yeah, yeah, and that. that's, that's actually funny. something that. If you've seen the documentary about him, that was something that was a point that Spielberg for the longest time had m- misunderstood. And it was only later that that he was kind of informed, like, no, 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 actually, I saw your the way that your mother was really unhappy and I let her go. Right. Because, and and I think that... He misunderstood it
0: as I want to leave where the reality was... I could see she wanted to leave, and i i couldn't i i couldn't, I couldn't hold i couldn't hold, hold her, her It wouldn't have been it, except, yeah, it it,
1: wouldn't. yeah it wouldn't have been right and and I think there's something to me quite remarkable about a movie like this because you know it's telling us a, a linear story just yeah. in terms of the narrative, but it's not telling a story that's sort of just a straight simple and this happened and this happened and this happened, nor is it a movie that has a particular like point to make, no. right. Which sometimes happens with certain biographies uh, and, and even autobiographical works where there's a little bit of, I went through something and here's the lesson that I've learned here. Now I'm imparting it to you. This movie feels like the kind of thing that in a way was made for nobody else other than Spielberg. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's... he made a movie for himself that other people that he then invite, invited other people to watch. Yeah. And there's something about that, that, you know, it puts the audience in a voyeuristic position that, that is so thorny where even the sort of superficially, you know, glowing look of the movie and, and the elements of it that would seem sort of simplistic and saccharine and, and, and lacking in depth on the surface just carry so much weight because there's just, again, there's the layers of meta-textual aspects to it. And then even within the film itself, there's just, there's a complexity to the way the characters behave and relate to each other from moment to moment. You know, one, one moment you have Sam upset with his mom because he's edited together this camping trip footage that, that he had. And uh, in it, it's, it almost reminded me of like a scene out of JFK. There's a bit of back into the left quality yeah, when he's yeah, editing it. Where and, yeah. like, and he's slowing and, it down
0: and, and slowing it down. Discovering it down. these
1: little tiny moments. It's not that there's an infidelity happening. It's that there's a relationship happening between his mother and Benny that he didn't notice that's captured there on the film. Presumably he was looking he was through looking, the lens. Yeah. So it's something that he didn't even see. Mm-hmm. with his own eye yeah it's the camera had to capture it for him to see it yeah that then makes him sort of upset with his mom and he gives her a bit of the silent treatment and he acts like a jerk to her and then after there's a bit of an altercation with with him over that uh he kind of breaks down and pulls out that little strip of film that he cut out of this of this edit and shows it to his mom. He puts her you know get, gets her to sit in the closet with a with an eight millimeter projector and she watches it, and she sees it, and then you see it dawning on her what she's looking at, what her son knows, yeah, uh, what what she has sort of unwittingly given up, given away. And when she comes out of that closet, he suddenly is swarmed to her and is hugging her and is saying, "I won't tell." you know so he's gone from from one reaction to another and you understand in that the difficulties that people go through when they encounter troubles between each other and the way that they don't act in straight lines that's that, that's something that you don't see a lot of no,
0: in, in No no that moment I'm I'm actually happy that you mentioned that moment because we you know we haven't really talked too much about individual performances yet mm. but Michelle Williams is putting on a masterclass in this yeah, movie in terms of I agree everything she does she's funny she's charming she's deeply deeply troubled and sometimes she's obviously like very lonely even though she's got tons of people around her um and in that moment where Sam sits her down and is like watch this and i mean I, just just in that moment like you can kind of you you must imagine what must be going through her head in that moment because mm-hmm. you know her son has shown her everything through the years from train crashes to you know world war ii stories to mummies you name it like you know yep. it's it's like here i made this you know and and it could be anything it could be absolutely anything mm-hmm. and without saying a word, without even so much as really lifting her hand, like it's all in, she's doing it all from the neck up. Mm -hmm. Michelle Williams just acts her ass off. We've Mm -hmm. already seen what she's presumably seeing, knowing now that she's seeing it all strung together and she's looking at what she should be looking at too. That's the thing is in most Mm -hmm. of these scenes, she is not front and center. She's usually in the background. So she's looking past her children, past Mm -hmm. her husband, past her husband and her children sometimes, and picking up on what it is that Sam wants her to know that he knows. And she is able to convey her heartbreak, her shame, Mm -hmm. her confusion, her pain in this Mm -hmm. moment to us. Her
1: fears. Her fears without, you know, with like barely moving a muscle. Well, I mean, it's it also, incredible. Look, it's, it's, it's an, it's a great perform. There's a few people I've heard who've been detractors of her performance. I they think they are I, wrong. First of all, the idea of not showing the footage uh, that she's, it's not cutting between her face and the no. footage, right? It's just yeah. on we her face. We already know it. Like, that's the thing. There's, there's actually no point in well, showing it again.
0: Cause we've already, we, we saw well, it quite detailed. Like Well, but not, ago.
1: not only that, he, he does a thing, which is, you know, At this point, we all know, and he, I'm sure, knows, there's the shot, the Spielberg face, right? Right, And that's what that shot is. And it's once again, as he's done over the years, when he returns to that shot, he consistently adjusts it, reframes it, gets it to do something new. And this was a time that he got it to really, really do something new, where what we're seeing is not somebody who's witnessing... Some great event, yeah. Or it's not wonder this time. Well, it's not just that it's not wonder. I mean, even in other films, he's used it for fear. He's used it, but it's it's almost always witnessing something large, yeah. And in this case, she's witnessing the smallest things of all. These moments that were captured in like you know five frames of a of of of, a, of an eight millimeter reel. It's it's these small moments. Take time to register. So it's also one of the longest of those types of shots that he's ever done because yeah. it needs to rest on her face for a solid minute to with her own to, music playing in behind. That's when he stops for a good period of time making films. He he yeah. and 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 it's because seemingly he's the the camera betrayed him. Yeah. The camera revealed something that he almost wishes that he hadn't seen and you know that gets back to that conversation he has with the bully which is did he know what he was doing or did the camera just capture it yeah the line there is blurry you know yeah. the camera captured it he still took that footage and put it onto a a, a loop of film and presented it to his mom that's in that's that's uh you know to to be very simplistic about it, an editorial judgment that he yeah, made. That's a choice. And, you know, yeah. that's a choice. Yeah. And this movie is full of of choices, both the choices that the characters make, but the choices that he's making as a filmmaker. You know, there's another extraordinary scene, uh, when Judd Hirsch shows up. He comes in for like, yeah. you know, a a a kind of like one and done kind of thing. There's yeah. there's technically two scenes with him. There's like a dinner scene and then and then a scene in the bedroom where he's He's her uncle, yeah he's her he uncle. Would be Sam's great uncle and he comes for he comes to visit after uh her mother dies his sister dies and and he's he's there and after kind of a, a bit of a raucous dinner he uh they're in um Sam's bedroom and he sees he recognizes he, there's a kinship there with with Sam where he recognizes oh this is a kid who cares about art you know his father has asked him to make this edit this film together of their camping trip to kind of have help his mom feel better, and all he wants to do is worry about you know the forty boys from his Cub Scouts that are uh, from his Boy Scouts troop that are uh, uh, coming to film this World War II movie that he's making, you know. So you have a house that's grieving and a kid who seems detached from that, you know. Hirsch gives him this kind of speech essentially where you know he's telling him like you know he he himself kind of became estranged from his family in a way because he went and pursued his own artistic dreams in the circus and in film and, and elsewhere. And he's telling him, you know, art and family, they'll tear you apart. Yeah. The two things don't go together. Mm-hmm. Because one thing... They you both know, maybe require it,
0: commitment. They both require your full self at all times. And yeah. they, they cannot, you know, two masses cannot
1: and occupy the same space. And that's the thing that's tearing his mother apart. Mm-hmm. Uh in 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 large part. And it's a thing that for him though he's too young to understand it is to some degree tearing him apart because he he's he's a person who can't seem to confront things in a direct way. There's a reason he can't just tell his mom, "Hey, I saw that you have something going on with Benny." Yeah. He had to show her a film. Yeah. He stands up to his bullies to some degree, but he can't just confront it properly. He needs to make a film where he cuts the guy down to size. When his parents inform them that they're splitting up, his sisters are freaking out. And he basically shuts down emotionally and goes back to his room and is cutting this ditch day film for the prom. And his sister comes in. Also, by the way, a, a great performance by his sister. I didn't recognize, the first time I saw it, I didn't recognize that it was Julia Butters from uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Ah, uh, I knew that's I recognized is. her from somewhere. Uh, and she comes in and and basically... How can you be to this ta- now? Yeah. Well, she's trying to... Yeah, how are you just editing this now? There was this crazy thing that happened. And she's trying to talk about what her mother is going through. And, you know, her brother is basically just kind of blaming her mom offhand. And she's saying, like, you know, she's clearly has problems. And there's this beautiful, beautiful moment to kind of cap that scene where his sister's like, "Okay, fine, I'm just going to leave. Clearly, you're not going to, you know, be there with me emotionally through this. Yeah. And he then stops her and asks, hey, could you just watch? the cut of of the film that i made and she comes she she agrees to and she comes and sits by him and kind of puts her head on his shoulder and is crying and you can see in that moment that she recognizes that this is the way that he is dealing with this grief
0: yeah that we all have to cope in our own ways and And, then that's the thing
1: it's that's a hard thing for a kid to actually really learn but it's but it's it's almost like she doesn't need to learn it because she it's his it's her brother and yeah. she gets it. The movie is full of those kinds of moments that are just uh you know there's a send off that he has with um with Seth Rogen's character with Benny where he's kind of upset with him and and you understand in the scene it's not spoken but you understand that his mom must have had a conversation with with Benny so Benny knows that he knows oh yeah something yeah but they're not talking about it no. and yet they're Nor talking they. about it yeah no they wouldn't talk about it, but they're but that's what they're talking about yeah. in that scene yeah and in that scene th- this is after sam has tried to sell like he sold his camera and actually <laughs> benny has like one. at the same yeah. time <laughs> bought him a better one and he's telling sam you have to keep making these movies if not for you then for your mom because there's an unspoken thing there where you know his mom is a pianist and it's talked about that she's very talented his, her 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 uncle thinks that she could have gone and performed in vienna yeah uh if she had wanted to but clearly she was torn between wanting to have a family and wanting to pursue those things benny in that moment is telling him you have to do that to some degree for her because she's hoping that you do that yeah. because she didn't get to do it. There's a consistent thing in the film where Sam is into movies, making movies. His dad, who's this uh, very brilliant computer scientist at the bleeding edge of computers, this is back in the '50s and '60s, right? It's like before computers were even really computers. Yeah, they're, they're uh,
0: talking about the amount of tape that a computer.
1: Can yeah, use. it's like wild. So, so, <laughs> but he basically keeps referring to his filmmaking as a as hobby. a hobby yeah. not a serious thing not something at one point he says like you know you should be looking to do things that actually are useful for people yeah. right because his father doesn't recognize that actually movies can be useful for people yeah, yeah, yeah. right but despite his father being presented in that way it's important to note that very early on in the movie he doesn't treat his wife that way no his wife he's in, trying to encourage her to go and perform on tv to yeah. pursue the piano as a real thing yeah right so that's the reason why i mean this simple thing that they keep coming back
0: to that they do is this family eats on paper plates with plastic utensils mm-hmm. and a paper tablecloth that yes. they then pile up at the end of the meal and just
1: so that she doesn't have to
0: do the dishes yeah so that she doesn't have to do the dishes because she's a pianist and her hands are very important yeah And this thing like the first two or three times you see it you're like why do they do that the first thing i was wondering was i was kind of back in the the, the, i was back in the time when i watched a serious man where Mm -hmm. i was like is this a jewish thing that i don't know no you know like yeah and and then i was like i'm like okay i'm just that's this this is eventually going to come in at some point or another and then yeah like the the third time you see it, it's like, So she doesn't have to wash the dishes, and you're like, oh, right, and yeah, right. I mean, you know, it's the, it's mildly, are... I mean, it's mildly inconvenient. I mean, it's it's actually quite convenient, but it's mildly inconvenient. It's but... mildly embarrassing, but at the same time, this is something that you know her husband is like, this is what we are doing so that we
1: your your right.
0: yeah, so that so that your you know your paintbrushes will stay clean, yep. your 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 pen will have ink, etc.
1: etc. Pick your yep. metaphor. A lesser movie, yeah, would have had a much more straightforward, the father is just not encouraging of artistic things, but that's not really no. how the movie operates. And and in that way, the movie is both quite bracingly honest, yeah. even though it has a soft touch about it. You know, it's not a movie that's like, that's like confrontational, no. right? Despite this film being sort of soft on the surface, there's a bracing quality to it. There are moments that just kind of, hit you emotionally not because they're particularly sentimental almost because they're the opposite because in a moment where you expect it to be sentimental it does something that that undercuts that and makes it's it It's very frank. You
0: know, there's there's times where it is actually like startlingly frank for a totally. film. Um totally. there's this there's this constant push pull in this movie between art and science, it's actually quite literally expressed at one point by Mitzi in this house, there are the scientists mm-hmm. and the artists. Um, I love that it's actually how this film begins, with Sam having his his kind of little panic moment in the lineup for The Greatest Show on Earth, and yeah. his mom is trying to say it's only a movie, it can't hurt you, it's just up there on the screen. It's well, just, she says
1: movies are dreams.
0: Movies are dreams, and, her, and his father's like actually what's His father's happening like is, explaining
1: like yeah he's like it's, it's actually it's pictures. A there's a light put through
0: the pictures and the pictures move faster than your brain can register yada, yada yada like and i love that there is this constant back well, and but, forth between the passion the expression the you know the the need to to, to create moments to create mm-hmm. something that lasts right down to mitzi's very beautiful uh, her drunken her drunken dance by by lit, headlights lit
1: by the headlights gorgeous yeah. scene yeah so, a, and again it there's a moment in that scene too that's so uh beautiful to me which is when his sister sees her doing that and sees that her her um uh kind of pajama slip whatever that that gown like that gown, she's wearing like that's the word you're going uh, for Night gown yes is I don't know. If my, my, my mind like, <laughs> it's a uh, it's a holter I don't think it's kind of. I don't think they're used quite as much anymore. Wear nightgowns anymore. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so she she's in her nightgown, and especially because of how it's rear lit by the headlights of this of this car, um, it's kind of a bit see through. And so her daughter is basically trying to go and like cover her up, and then dance in front of her to distract. And she doesn't understand why her mother is doing this, like putting herself at out there that way yeah she also doesn't understand why all the the men in the family essentially are just sitting around watching it right and of course they're not watching it in any kind of a um a sexual way it's 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 a moment where it's almost like she's the the daughter is too young to kind of quite comprehend just a deep emotional expression happening in that moment yeah and I don't know. Again, it's it's just like the, the to have scenes like that 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 have that level of um, of complication to them. When I went into the film, I mean, I was looking forward to. It. I saw it at TIFF the first time, and I I, I was looking forward to it because I love Spielberg and and I like the idea of him kind of going back and making a movie about himself. But you know, I was a bit concerned about what that might look like, and I think that he and you know with the help of kushner i don't know they really accomplished something it's it's also you know we're talking about all this serious stuff it's also a very funny film it's it's yeah it's it's the closest thing spielberg's made to like a a comedy at least a comedy for adults in quite a while yeah um and and it's you know at one
0: point later later on the movie in the third act of the movie in the talking about the the girlfriend yeah in the in, in the in the high school he he meets a girl a christian girl who's who's very into him and really wants jesus to find him uh she's and very
1: she's she loves she, god
0: she brings him to her bedroom and if jesus was gonna find him that's clearly where he'd find him because he's all over the walls uh to a startling degree alongside frankie valley and elvis yep, presley yep, and yep. you're looking at it like you're halfway towards Carrie, and I'm like I'm like in a few it's years, that, you know that sequence.
1: People were like rolling. That, I that, would,
0: I lost it. Like there weren't that many people in my theater when yeah when the camera
1: turned in her bedroom. I was like, sweet that Lord, scene that that whole that's scene when fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that whole that whole scene is is extremely funny. I mean, that's the kind of light stuff uh that that's that's just great um it's also i mean it's also look it's light but it's it's in a section of the film that's actually dealing with the jewishness very directly because he's experiencing this anti-anti-semitism i I mean the thing that's i mean it's almost it's almost strange to fathom now but
0: it is the truth that spielberg himself actually wrestled with his judaism uh well into his adulthood actually like he he you know he was something he wasn't comfortable with it was something that obviously he he gained uh you know unwanted attention for uh you know at times Mm -hmm. and it's you know it's people may forget or people may not even know that it's the kind of thing that you know he he wasn't he wasn't always the guy who would go on to make schindler's list and yeah i mean you know and that's and that's that's something that it's i it's not in this
1: film but I, I feel like the seeds of it are there. I don't even think it's just the seeds of it are there. I think I think it's there in a really big way. And I think that the you know this is the first movie that he's made that I think deals with the lived experience of being Jewish, particularly in North America.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so. You know, well, I mean, Schindler's List is about the Holocaust, so that's yeah. not you know that's not about being Jewish. That's just about the Holocaust, right? You know, it happened to Jews. Uh, but it doesn't particularly reflect anything about the lived experience because it's such a uh, an anomalous um, kind of experience. And same you know? thing. And same thing with Munich. This is the first movie that he's made that's about being Jewish, or or that at least in part is about being Jewish. It's there uh, after they come back home from the movie, and they're where Where's our house? Oh, it's the one with no lights. lights. Right. You know. Uh, it's there when, with, with the grandparents, it's there when the Judd Hirsch scene, which is like just about the most Jewish scene I've ever seen in my life, where, where, um, you know, he even has this great, there's this great moment where he like suddenly starts remembering his sister died and he like tears his shirt and, and, and Sam is like, Oh my God, what's going on? And he's like, what, you never seen a guy grieving before. And then, and then of course, you know, there's a, there's a tradition in, in Judaism uh, the family when they're sitting shiva uh, after somebody's died, uh, that they tear a piece of their cloth clothing. So Jud Hirsch tells him, "I'm going to sleep on the floor." And Sam is like, "Well, you can sleep on the bed." And he's like, "No, I'm going to sleep on the floor. My my, uh, I'm sitting shiva. It's your grandmother. Tear your clothes. Sleep on the floor." Yeah. And and he he tears a bit tears of his clothes of his and pocket. sleeps on yeah. it. And I'm like. These are things that you've never seen in a Spielberg movie before. Quite honestly, you don't see very often in mainstream Hollywood movies. For as as Jewish as as Hollywood is, yeah, uh, Hollywood has tended, much like Spielberg did, to shy away from Judaism because it was not the mainstream. Yeah. Because they're making movies that are appealing to you know a broadly uh, uh, sort of Protestant um, um, public. People are gonna treat you certain ways. People are gonna treat you ways that are both bullying, in some cases fetishizing, right? Like like the girlfriend like the does. Girlfriend, now yeah. that's something that he goes along with because he's a teenage boy. But those cute. are the right. yeah. and she's cute and whatever, but those are the kinds of things that that I can tell you, particularly uh for for, you know, the secular Jews out there, that's a very common experience in terms of how Jewish people relate to their jewish identity it's often a very thorny thing Mm -hmm. and so it was so interesting to me to see him you know wrestling with that and again not in a way that that like underlines anything. it's not a movie about anti-semitism it's just one of many things that happens
0: that's the thing this movie there's a lot of things this movie is about like the only one thing it is not about is nostalgia um and even then it's got traces of that and in Mm kind of i'd say the best way um Mm -hmm. And at the end of it all, what's interesting is it is undoubtedly uh, a masterpiece. And at the same time, it is probably the simplest masterpiece that he has ever made, may ever make. Um, you know, like mm-hmm. the 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 only movie that he's ever made that is this simple, maybe two, are The Post and perhaps uh, Bridge of Spies. Those are the only two movies he's made that are this simple. Every other movie he's made is very, very showy, very big, very, you know, lavish design, production, you know, like over the top kind of thing. This movie, while I'm sure there is a lot of money present, could be made very cheap. Um, Mm. And it's, it's, it's so simple. It's people in rooms. It's people talking. It's people growing up. It is very much a masterpiece in a line with schindler's list and saving private ryan and raiders of lost ark jaws and on and on like the guy's got like 10 masterpieces now um which is wonderful to see at this stage in his career because let's be honest i don't know how many more movies he
1: has it's a deceptively great movie it's the kind of thing that like even when i saw it at tiff i i I really loved it i had an emotional reaction to it but the days after seeing it are when it really kind of started to congeal for me. Cause I'm like, I'm just thinking about scenes and thinking again about all those layers it's layers within the film and then layers of meta text. And, and it's, it, it, it's exciting to, to, to see a filmmaker in his late stages, make a movie like this that is just for, it, again, for as linear as it is and straightforward as it is, it's anything but straightforward. It's a masterpiece. And, and, it, yeah, it, it's, like, there is no other way really to describe great. this movie. It's so completely necessary to how the movie works is yeah. that you feel the hand of the person who made it because it's it's his story and it's his understanding of his story. you know, um, and, and it's interesting that he would take that and put it out into the world to be like, okay, now it's open to you. You guys can interpret it. Yeah, take what you want from it. Yeah. from my story. Here, take take from my, ther- my interpretation of my story. Take my therapist you know? notes and please and not, discuss. And not just not just his interpretation, but also his own self mythologizing. Because of course he's always been a self mythologizer. He's always told stories about himself. That, like I'm sure the basic facts are true, but you know he's a storyteller. So like when he talks about how he snuck onto the Universal lot and made himself an office there, like I'm sure that happened but it probably wasn't quite as epic of a heist as he portrays it. You (laughs) know what I mean? I'm sure the scene that happens at the end of the movie, which this, you know, we won't spoil for anybody who doesn't want to. Did that happen? It did happen. Okay. But the thing, but the thing about that scene is that there's a talk that he gave where he tells the story of that scene. Yeah. It is exactly almost word for word. The same as the, the way that he told it on stage. Right. So there's showmanship to the way that he's presenting that story. I'm sure that it didn't happen literally exactly that way. But much like his favorite movie, which uh, is featured in the film, he goes to see it at one point and then becomes a thing at the end. Yeah. Uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Uh, Spielberg is a believer in printing the legend. Yeah. So for all that it's this bracing, honest film, he's still doing that thing of like making the reality just so, you know, somebody asked him about the, in the film, you know, he's making all of these, uh, these super eight films and and whatever these uh, films with his friends. If you pay attention, if you know anything about film stocks, most of the footage that's being shown is not eight millimeter. It's maybe like in some cases even 35. Yeah. And he was asked about that, like, you know, th- you made, th- they look really good. And he basically admitted that, like, you know, he still has all of those films. Famously, he gave them to J.J. To Abrams at some point to uh, re- to kind of restore and preserve all these eight millimeter films he made. Um, hopefully one day we get to see them. But he kind of said, like, this was his chance to remake them and actually make them <laughs> so oh, I love you know it. this is but that, again that tells you something about him yeah. it tells you something about him that he's like i'm gonna go back to my movies that i made when i was literally like you know 14 years old and i'm gonna do them better i gonna mean, try to like, make them
0: like a 14 i'm gonna make them but clearly I, but like better but like
1: yeah. good you know yeah. I don't know, that. that's so revealing. It's so yeah, revealing yeah. And, and refreshing. And those scenes are great, just in themselves. Oh, They're yeah. just great scenes.
0: Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, because usually we end our reviews with a rating. I'm sure people can probably hear the joy in our voice and and deduce the rating for themselves. So I just kind of want to leave that out. But we do end with a souvenir. And there is a lot in this movie that one could take if they want to and keep. Coria Tad, what would be
1: your souvenir from The Fablements? I mean, what I really want is that is that eight millimeter uh, editing like movieola yeah, that he has. Yeah, I, it's just I saw that and I'm just like, I want one of those. Seems like fun, I don't even have it? eight millimeter film, but I'm just like, I just kind of want one of those and I want to play around with it. I I kind of always wished that I had gotten a chance to play around with the uh, kind of like the real old school editing machines. Right, right. Um, like, give me give me one of those. I, I know that Spielberg himself was still cutting. On a Steinbeck until I think sometime around Warhorse. I want yeah, to say yeah, very late, very mm. late
0: he was cutting yeah. on He claimed he could work faster, um, sure, but yeah. um, you know, I, but but it worked for him. Um, I'm I'm going a little bit more obvious. I want that train set. That train oh, set, oh sure, yeah. I loved that he got it over the eight nights, and like mm-hmm. I, I, you know, mm-hmm. that they saved saved the locomotive to the eighth night. Mm-hmm. they they look like i mean they, they were gorgeous they, they're they all metal mm-hmm. the, you
1: know, yeah toxic. those are real like proper trains real trains like that like that, that you can that. see why his dad is upset with him when he uh crashes I mean, the trains
0: that you know the the main controller of that thing looked like i was like why is a child allowed near that thing like that looks
1: like it could do some no no that, that's 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 a real hobbyist thing i mean that's like uh what's his face and the sopranos kind of stuff you
0: yeah know? Yeah, or or uh, a mighty wind when he when he's got yes, the crab tail. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 but I'm like, yes. yeah, it's like, why is a child allowed near that much electricity in one little box? That this wow. should not be allowed. Like I was I was very much in a line with the grandmother. I'm like, what are we doing here? <laughs> no, but I want that. It looks great. Um, the Fablemans, please for the love of God, see it if you haven't already. Yeah, it's um, You know, and, and think, I'll say, you, you know, know, we're we, we're we, like
1: a couple of movie buffs and whatever. I took my mom to see it, uh, and and she called me the next morning and literally was like. I can't stop thinking about it. I was dreaming about it. Yeah, it's, so, a, it's a
0: fabulous movie. I yeah, think it really does. It. It, you know, like, listen, this is the show over the last several episodes we've talked about, um, you know, the Banshees of Anishir, and we talked about Tar, and these are movies that are a little bit more highfalutin. I don't think that this is that. I think this is a movie that is actually quite broad and quite mainstream in mm-hmm. its appeal, but has so very much baked into it in a way that only a master can do. Um, the yep. table if you haven't already, please see it. And, I, you know, even though we talked a lot about what happened, we have not, I believe, ruined the emotional impact that a lot of people no, have. No, no, So yeah. please go see it. Um, we are going to yeah. take a quick break here and uh, flip the record over to play the other side. Right after this. back he's Corey atad i'm ryan mcneil it's Matt Neacast 296 the slow march to 300 continues sometime in january that's going to happen i think i even finally figured out what i'm going to do um we have been talking about the fablemans um it's the time of the show where we flip the record over we talk about further viewing for the reading um other works that you could go on to after seeing the moving question Corey, why don't you get us started
1: where do you think that somebody should go on to after the fablemans um, that for, for complimentary viewing. So I have I have two movies, and I'll I'll save what both of them are off the top, sure. and I'll talk about why. Okay. Uh, the two movies are uh, they're both recent films. Oh. I saw them both at TIFF. Okay. Um, one of them is already out, and the other one I think is coming out maybe next week, okay, or the week after. Uh, so the first is After Sun. The second is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Okay. The reason I chose both of these films. Is because this year at TIFF, in, in a way that was like very striking, the number of movies that I saw that were about parents and children. You know, there was also the Whale and the Sun, and there was a bunch of other there was there was a few other movies that that were dealing with with these issues. Fablemans and After Sun and All Beauty and the Bloodshed were kind of unique among the, the all those films in that they weren't just about parents and children. They were about children who are now adults, in some cases quite old adults, uh, like Spielberg, looking back on their past and their childhood and looking back at their parents and how their parents were during that time. So After Sun, it's a debut feature by a Scottish filmmaker who works out of New York named uh, Charlotte Wells. So she's made a couple of short films. This is her first feature. It is one of the most impressive debut features I've I've seen period. It stars Paul Mescal from people known from Normal People um and dating Phoebe Bridgers. He plays sort of a a a a young father who um kind of reunites with his uh young I think she's supposed to be like uh you know 11-year-old daughter or something. Uh, uh, maybe ten years old or something. Mm, uh, I
0: got the feeling she's like twelve.
1: Oh, she might be. Yeah, it's 10, possible. Ten she's feels 12. a little shy for
0: where that story goes. Uh, or...
1: Yeah, I, yeah, maybe twelve. Yeah, it's. I, I figured like around eleven. But anyways, it's not said. Uh, no, I don't think. No, it's but, but, but I think it's, it's right. A, I think yeah. it's right around there. They they're basically on vacation uh, at a, at sort of a British resort in in southern Turkey. The movie is mostly just like. watching them on vacation yeah watching them on vacation this is this is kind of like what they were doing um there's like some moments that that are a bit more dramatic but for the most part it's it's not a movie that has like a whole lot that happens but it's also a movie that is very clearly framed through the scope of memory and memory in this case that that the filmmaker is sort of the avatar for the filmmaker it's again clearly autobiographical girl is her but then you see her sort of at the current age uh played by an actress who's watching uh these uh old um mini dv tapes from that uh uh, from that trip and reflecting on her father and her relationship with her father who you kind of understand through the course of the movie uh it seems like he lives in Turkey, or he at the very least, he lives apart from, uh, from his family. He must have had issues growing up with his parents. Um, you get sort of hints of that. Um, and, you know, he's a troubled guy. And yet it's this very lovely vacation, except for sort of there's one kind of bit where it goes a little bit dark, a little bit sour. As vacations uh, sometimes do. As vacations sometimes do. But it's not like the worst thing in the world. It's a movie that, you know, a lot of people have been having very emotional reactions. When I saw it at TIFF, I basically had to like run out of the theater when it was finished because I was about to burst into tears. And I ran into the washroom and like basically started crying for a while. And then I came out and I, and I was there with some friends and they were kind of like, are you okay? And uh, what was it about the movie that was doing that? And it's like, as I would open my mouth, I would like start crying again. Um, so it obviously hit very deeply. Part of that, I think, is my own personal connections to some of the aspects of the movie. First off, uh, on just a superficial level, I was around that age, a little bit younger, but around that age, at the time that the movie is set, which is sort of like late 90s, yeah. um, living in Turkey at that mm-hmm. time. And my dad has some issues here and there sometimes, so, although not quite like in the film. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, there were aspects of it that, that kind of hit quite personally. But I also think that again as an act of memoir understanding through the film you know it's a film that you don't get much exposition or even much just outright plot and yet you don't get a whole lot closure either you don't get closure except that you kind of do because the movie is made in such a way that you get it you just get it even though nothing is spoken you get what it's do you get what it's about you get what the characters are reflecting on even if you don't know the specifics you get it when you see the the father dealing with whatever traumas he's dealing with you understand that this is a guy who's almost not made for the world like it as much as he's sort of a can be a happy-go-lucky guy there's a darkness in him one of the things that that
0: movies like this are really and and to, to a lesser degree the fablemans are trying to spell out is it's only very recently that adults have become parents by choice for, for almost all of human history it was just what you did whether or, yeah. or not you were suited to it whether or not you were ready for it whether or not you knew what you were doing and sure Potentially capable of screwing up another human life yeah it was it was just it was it was just what you did well, it's only but, now, like it's only really very, very recently, where people are starting to like have a say in whether or not they do, whether or not they feel totally, they should totally. et etc cetera, et cetera. and this is a story of he's a
1: young father, he's a very young father, still trying to figure it out, you know there's this amazing moment, very close to the end of the movie where they're kind of sitting uh, on their last dinner for their last dinner at, at the resort. And a guy comes up uh, with a Polaroid camera to take a photo and he leaves the photo on the table and it's developing as they're talking and what they're talking about is very important, but the camera stays with the, the Polaroid as it develops. And in that you understand there's something that she's doing with cinematic language It's not so much that nobody's done it before, it's just that rarely do people do it, certainly not in their first film, uh, with such command, with such trust. She knows that she can construct this movie that basically feels like somebody going through their memories. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I think it connects, not just because it's about a complicated relationship with parents and kids and divorce and various things, but because... Similar to the Fablemans, it's a movie that it's a movie where the cinematic language becomes so key to this almost therapeutic idea of confronting these memories and confronting the past and confronting your parents as complicated individuals who informed yeah. your own bringing up, um, who informed your own issues. You know, there's a moment in After Sun, which is one of the flash-forward moments, where you know she's in bed with her girlfriend, and uh, or or wife or something. It's not again, it's not spoken. Uh, there, they have a baby, and the baby's crying. So you understand that she's now a parent. But also sh- the way that she sits up in the bed, you uh, I forget at what point you know it. Maybe it's in that scene where you understand that that's her uh, um, her birthday. I think. Yeah. Um, or maybe her father's birthday. It's not, maybe I'm misremembering. I, I, um, I feel like it's hers because I, I feel think like we a, see a card. I, I think it's her birthday. And I think the idea is that she is now the age that her father was in yeah. that 31. I think so. Yeah. she's the same age uh, that her father was on that trip. Uh, Cause he turns 31 on that trip. And the, the idea that she now in her own birthday, you see her, you know, it's not quite a depression, but there's a certain uh, level of, of there's an anxiety for there's sure. an anxiety and a searching and a melancholy that's there's there. A, there's a, I've, I've been referring to it. There's, there's a fogginess. It's so interesting to me to have a filmmaker put that on screen. You know, she, these aren't the only filmmakers who've been doing this. That's been there. And it's there in Armageddon time uh, to a great degree, although less dreamy. It's there very much in a very dreamy way. In certain cases, in uh, Joanna Hogg's recent films, um, both in uh, the souvenir films and then her most recent film, uh, Eternal Daughter, which will be coming out soon, mm-hmm. um, which is another parent and 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 child movie that was that that actually I could have included in this in this thing as well. Um, the idea of these filmmakers using film in a truly memoiristic fashion to look back on themselves and look back on other people and confront these things. I mean, other filmmakers have done that before, but it feels, it's interesting to me that more and more are doing it now. Um, I think it speaks to something that's interesting about the development of film actually uh, and, and film language. Um, That something that traditionally would have just been left to a book like Spielberg might've just written a book. Yeah. Like this is, we're talking about Spielberg making one of his final films. Yeah. Thankfully won't be his final film, but it could very well have been his final film. Uh, He's old enough. Yeah. To have somebody who makes her first First movie and does the same thing.
0: Yeah.
1: It's incredible. And I'll get to all the beauty in the bloodshed uh, in a minute, but, but well, my, uh, um,
0: so I have two as well and my my two are a little bit more obvious in terms of their connection. Um so the first one that I'll just touch on is um and we mentioned it in the main review is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Um mm-hmm. John Ford classic, um another, you know,
1: masterpiece. What a picture.
0: Yeah. <laughs> a, a masterpiece of uh masterpiece of, of a man who had many masterpieces. Um mm-hmm. still the uh still the director who has the most best director um wins what it four four like i don't i'm not sure that's going to be caught
1: no because spielberg will will spielberg is stuck I mean, on spielberg, two spielberg at most will have three yeah uh at, at most you yeah. know maybe in yard 2 will we'll uh claim that crown i don't know uh,
0: i don't know like, uh, they, they seem to be they seem to be real fast to give you two after two it's like you really got to earn it yeah because there's there's a lot i don't
1: know that i don't know that Inyari to earn the first two so there's uh, that
0: um and that's the thing like the 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 doubt really starts to creep in after the second one um but the man who thought shot literally it's just yeah fantastic movie jimmy stewart john ford um it's the funny thing is it's long but it's brisk Mm -hmm. you know like it moves um it's like you said it's the idea of well if the legend is better than the truth print the legend um, you know, I, I, I don't know really what to say about it other than see it, you know, you and I talked, actually, it's funny. You and I talked about this, uh, at the bar earlier on this week about how the greatest show on earth yeah. plays such a central part to this film. And yet I would not recommend anybody see that movie, watch yeah. the train crash for sure. Cause it's a master of filmmaking and maybe just read the wiki, but do not subject yourself to what is very much I like as much as i'm sure it formed steven spielberg's passion um that is the passion of a 10 year old boy who is not seeing the wires and we yep. are not 10 so don't see that movie but considering how the man who shot liberty Valance plays into this movie and how great a film that is um you know in a genre that can be problematic it's not a problematic film thank you very good nicely done um uh, you know it's talk a little bit more about this and maybe a little bit less about The Searchers. Um,
1: Yeah, I I, I would totally tell people to. Yeah, although The Searchers has also informed Spielberg. Well, The Searchers
0: searchers is... I mean, the I mean, searchers go, is go,
1: marvelous. Go watch, go, go watch, uh, go, watch uh, go watch Munich, and oh yeah, uh, and watch the end of that movie. Oh yes, it's, it's it's the ending of it's the yep. ending of the searchers.
0: Yep, you know? i've I've seen I've seen more references to the searchers in in film than I can count. And the searchers yeah. is a technical marvel. It's just as time goes on, you're like.
1: I don't know. I'm comfortable. This I mean, I don't know. I don't have that problem with that. I mean, not not that you're wrong about like the issues that that movie has, but it's just like I don't know. It's part and parcel with the film. It's a it's yeah. If you a can diff- sit down and have it's, a
0: contextual conversation at the beginning, they
1: just it's a difficult it's a difficult movie, but it's uh, it's it's an extraordinary. I mean, what that movie does in so many ways oh, is yeah. extraordinary. What was the uh, what was the other movie you have for your other side? So the other movie I have is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Okay. coming out soon I think Uh, like I said in in the next week or two might already be playing in like New York Uh, I'm not sure it is the documentary that just won the Golden Lion at Venice um, Laura Poitras yes by Laura Poitras Citizen Four Laura Poitras always been a good filmmaker this I think is her masterpiece at least so far Um, it's a film about the photographer and artist nan golden who was part of i mean speaking of earlier talking about the underground scene and john waters and those people she was connected to all of that particularly the queer underground scenes in 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 new york uh and 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 actually in boston and other places Um, she's also well known these days and the film covers a lot of this for being part of organizing the protests at museums and universities and, and places, uh, those types of public places against the Sackler family, Okay. who who uh, we all would know from... Uh, Dope Sick. Uh, sorry? From Dope Sick. From Dope Sick and, and, and all the... Real human, world, the horrible... The real world human death. destruction that yes. they've caused uh, out of greed. And so she's, she's with her, her group responsible for a lot of the museums taking the Sackler name. Uh, off of their wings and and um, and refusing their donations and basically you know if you can't hold the sacklers accountable actually then at the very least you can drum them out of polite society <laughs> the documentary also just kind of tells the story of her life and part of the story of her life is this extremely complicated relationship that she had with her parents mm. who she views as essentially having caused her sister's suicide oh wow and and it's incredibly emotional. And there's a scene close to the end of the film. It's one of the most remarkable things that I've seen in a movie. Now, keep in mind, this is a movie that is not not—it's not an experimental film. It's not particularly arty. It's about the art scene, but it's pre- presented in a fairly... You know, it jumps around in time a bit, but it's a fairly straightforward thing. Um, talking heads a bit. Uh, um, you know, fly-on-the-wall stuff. There's stuff where well, they'll spend a few minutes showing an excerpt from one of her photo slideshows, that kind of thing. and But then there's this moment near the end where there's footage of her with her parents, who up until this point, actually, you've almost assumed that she's totally estranged from her parents. And yet, you know, here she is kind of meeting with her parents, and they're actually talking about her sister and her mother at one point is trying to remember this uh, quote that her sister had written in in a diary and she goes and gets the diary. And anyway, it's this extremely emotional scene where her parents are reflecting in that moment, a humanity that you actually hadn't understood before because they kind of actually seemed monstrous up Mm, until that point in the film. And you see them for the human beings that they are right. It's a generosity on the, on the part of the artist. It's incredible. It's incredible. You know, it's, and and it's a generosity. It's something, it's so personal. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be that generous. No, no, you know, they could, they could hold on to all their resentments and, and never get over them, you know, but that's not, that's not what they chose to do. What they chose to do is actually reflect the humanity of their parents. Yeah. Rather than the way that, Rather than just focus on their parents screwing them up, which, you know, they also did. Right. Right. Um,
0: my my second choice is um, much more obvious, um, even than uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. My last choice to kind of close out this episode is... Um, another Spielberg masterpiece. One I don't think people think of quite as often now when they think always. About his masterpiece.
1: Talking masterpiece always? Yes,
0: I'm definitely talking about always. Um, no, I'm talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Well yeah, um, it's, it's it's his yeah, best movie. It, it's yeah, wow, well, okay. I mean, I'm no no. It's my no, like, it's
1: my favorite. It's my favorite of his okay.
0: films. Okay, that's I mean, it's yeah, yeah. uh, it, it's it's yeah. top three for me. Um, yeah. but but it's 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 the one that kind of like showed me a different side it showed me yeah. what how spectacle can be much more thoughtful right than that 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 a blockbuster movie yes yeah that it yeah. can be very human and very tender um yeah. this is the movie of course um where the question of scientific advancements of, of scientific um, um achievement is settled with art you know, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a film where we are trying to communicate with higher beings who do not speak English because why would they? And the way we are able to communicate with them is through music. And you know, if your father is a scientist and your mother uh, is a musician, this is the story yeah. that you are going to create. Granted,
1: um, in this case, he's flipped it. The uh, the father is the dreamer. Yes. Uh, yeah. The father's the dreamer, the father's the one who leaves the family.
0: Yes. Yeah, and he's actually even said that if he that was only a story that he could write before he became a father because if he had of waited until he became a father to write that
1: he never Yeah, would have but had you father know what leave. you know what's inter- you know what's interesting about that is that he says that. I think it's interesting that when he made close encounters in a way he inhabited the point of view of here's something that's drawing me away from my family. Mm -hmm. And he presented that as, I don't know about a good thing in itself, but sort of like neutral in terms of, we see the family fall apart and that's terrible, but it's also this beautiful thing that he gets to witness. And it's in the
0: name of something greater. Sure.
1: Later he becomes a father. Suddenly he's like, ah, shit, I wouldn't do that. That's not, you know, that's not my thing. Now, all these years later, he's looking back on his own parents directly where one of his parents literally did that thing. Yeah. And he looks at it with a kind of generosity.
0: Yeah. It's,
1: it's, it's it's trippy.
0: That's Um, an amazing development. You know, I know that he gets a lot of credit in, you know, for the, the the way he was able to make chicken salad out of chicken feathers with jaws when the shark wasn't working. But this is a Mm -hmm. film where He takes what he learned and he elevates it like a lot of the ways that he shows alien presence without any actual aliens around is incredible. And when you learn how he was getting, you know, this was the first film that he worked with children. And when you learn how he was getting the reactions out of the children that he was getting and what he was doing and the tricks happening behind the camera, how he had like a clown jump out and a monkey jump out. And how he was, like, unwrapping toys to get the film, to get the kid to, like, look longingly towards it. That Spielberg gaze that you talked about and, Mm -hmm. like, lick his lips. This is a guy who still at the time is pretty damn young and is able to show great maturity. The story is actually quite complex. It's not the same as Jaws, which is just you know 10 little indians like who's gonna get eaten next yeah 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 this is a this is a story that is really really complex in terms of communication in terms of relationships in terms of isolation all these themes that that bake into it um in yeah it it, like i can see why somebody would say that it's their their favorite spielberg film
1: Those, Um, those those scenes of the family falling apart are raw
0: oh yeah i'm beginning to think that it's underrated like, which is weird to say for a masterpiece. But I'm beginning to no, think, like, a, when yeah, you yeah. talk about Spielberg films, people tend to come up with Where's the Lost, Dark Jaws, Shenmue's List, Jurassic like. Park. Like, it'll take somebody four or five answers, usually, to get to Close Encounters. It, and I don't it, think it, it's, it's also, also just,
1: just incredibly, incredibly well made. I mean, it's just that the the production is mounted. The the photography, you know, uh, uh cinematography is mm-hmm. outrageously good. The score is great. Yeah. I mean, it's also like, I'll say this, too, about the failments. I think in some other filmmakers' hands, some of the stuff would would be a bit hard to take in terms of like how naturally gifted the kid is right, at making yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah. You're kind of like, oh, did you just make Hold a movie about, a about how? Yeah, did you, about you just how, make a movie how about brilliant how brilliant like you are? Yeah, the great filmmaker, whoever whoever lived. Yeah. The thing is, though, he is. Yeah. So it's like it's like. If it was any other filmmaker, that might be an issue, but when you're watching his stuff and he's demonstrating in the making of, in the film itself, you're just like, I don't know how he does this. It's so good. Yeah. And, and the same is true of, like, Close Encounter. You just, you watch that movie. It's just, it's, he was so young at the time. It's, like, unbelievable.
0: There we go, folks. That is an epic episode 296 of the Matinee cast. I'm so thankful that uh, Corey Tad was able to come by. Come on back for episode 297. We will be discussing Glass Onion, um, Corey, uh, you, are still on the Twitter. If people want to follow you, where can they find
1: you? Yeah, I'm on there. I, uh, I, I'm back. I was off Twitter for a bit. I'm back on to witness, uh, Watch the, the burning. The, you know, I, I like drama. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> Clearly. uh, yeah. So I'm on there. You can follow me at Corey, tad. I have stuff that I've written fairly recently. I wrote a review of, um, of the weird owl film, oh. uh, that's up at Gawker. Um, I did. Out of TIFF, I did a uh, an article uh, interviewing the uh, filmmakers and the author behind uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, hmm. which is a great, great uh, sort of manifesto of a book uh, to pick up. Very thought thought provoking. The movie is just absolutely excellent. Uh, great heist thriller about blowing up a pipeline. Uh, I think it's going to come out in the spring. But that article is uh, is. Um, uh, up at Gawker as well.
0: Uh, my site, of course, is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes there. You can also find them on uh, all the usual places, Apple, Blueberry, Google, iTunes Store.
1: Um, there's Wherever all... your podcasts are sold. Yeah,
0: exactly. Wherever greater podcasts are found. Um, everything gives you a handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on the Fablements can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email me, ryan at thematine.ca on Twitter, I'm sort of still there, uh, matinee underscore CA. I'm sort of kicking the tires of Hive, so I'm at matinee over there. Um, and there's always. It
1: sucks. It's not going anywhere on Gotcha. You.
0: <laughs> Facebook. None <laughs> of them are. That's the problem. Facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Attad?
1: No, no. Just, uh, you know, Spielberg. What a guy. <laughs> I, I like. What a picture. For Corey, I'm Ryan. We'll
0: see you at the matinee. Dark, dark, dark.